Hey, everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network, where we take a closer look each week at the wide, weird, and wonderful world of running. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Late last week, my co-host Brendan Leonard and I had a fantastic and really fun conversation with Jenny and Scott Jurek. Now, admittedly, this probably wasn't the conversation that you ought to have when you have the opportunity to talk with such an icon of the sport like Scott and someone who is as interesting and accomplished as Jenny. But, you know, whatever. So... What you are about to hear might not be the definitive interview for all time with Jenny and Scott, but it is the conversation that we actually did have, and it was a ton of fun, and we certainly did cover some interesting topics like Scott's very first race, Jenny's transition from climbing to running, how Scott and Jenny met, Scott's love of cooking, we also discussed Jenny's most excellent ambition to set the slowest known time on the Pacific Crest Trail, and we talk about the process of co-writing their wonderful book, North, which you all certainly should read if you haven't done so already. Finally, in this conversation, you will hear a few chirps from Jenny and Scott's young kids. So in this episode, you actually get to hear from the entire Jurek family. And so with that, let's now go ahead and have Brendan Leonard get things started with Jenny and Scott Jurek. Scott and Jenny Jurek, thanks for coming on Off the Couch uh, on this snowy day in Colorado. Um, thanks for having us. We are actually both on the couch. Um, but <laughs> Jenny, you got to get off. You got to get off the couch for this podcast. There is no couch sitting on this podcast. Well, it's the only time we have to sit. Both kids are actually taking a nap, which rarely happens uh, to have things in sync. God, I kind of, I kind of feel bad that we're taking you guys away from this <laughs> I know. quiet hour that you have at your house. Uh, <laughs> this better be good. <laughs> you guys are sort of. I would say famous in this circle and um, have been through interviews many, many times before. So there's like a lot of questions that have already been asked of you. So I am, I was been racking my brain for the last 24 hours going through both of your books. I, I don't know when I was reading Eat and Run, but there are over a hundred smashed mosquitoes in my copy because of, <laughs> I must've been reading it in a tent or by a campfire and uh, there's all these, these all these dead bugs in it. Um, but, but wonderful to go through those again. Um, so we don't like, you know, of course we're not going to talk about how this race plan and this race results and, or anything like that, but we sort of take a more lifelong approach to the idea of running and, um, how it's going for both of you, where you started. And, um, and I think time-wise it makes sense to start with Scott because Jenny is more of a late, later, late comer to running. Scott, I have in my notes uh, fourth grade mile and a half race at Caribou Lake Elementary School, running for St. Rose School, and you got second place. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I like to say I began running, you know, whenever I could basically head out into the woods behind my house and build trails and stuff like that. So I feel like I'm like a lot of kids. We you know, running is second nature. You know, we do it because we can, and it's how we explore the world around us. Um, but in terms of like entering a formal race or feeling like running was um, something that I did outside of, you know, just the pure joy and fun of being a kid, it was probably that fourth grade race um, because it was actually a setting. But, you know, it wasn't something I'm like, oh, now I'm a runner. Um, and it's really hard for me to <laughs> pinpoint when that was, but I guess that was like maybe the formal thing. And everyone in the school had to do this um, thing as part of PE. And it was like a little, I guess, race to see, okay, who's going to represent our little Catholic elementary school, which we had, 
I think we had 12 kids in our class. <laughs> so as a fourth grader, it was always like, oh, when you become a fourth grader, here you go. Now you get to, now, now we're going to find out who's the fastest in our, you know, 12 person class. And you're going to represent the school district, you know, us at the school district. So that was really the, the start of it, but I wasn't thinking much of it. It was like, oh, I was the fastest. So I got sent to this race out on Caribou Lake and ran against all the public school kids. And at the time, placing second, I really didn't think, oh, I'm going to be a, a runner. In fact, the cross country coach, as I became a fifth grader, sixth grader, he kept being like, okay, you got to come up for cross country. And it wasn't something I, I ever thought I was going to do. First of all, do you remember who got uh, first place in that race? Uh, that's a good question. Do you ever wonder what, like, how how his running career turned out after? <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, a lot of kids in my school didn't have huge aspirations when okay. running. Yeah, <laughs> and and you came to it more because uh, your your family, like, you lived five miles outside of Proctor, Minnesota, and it was just kind of like other sports weren't going to work out because of. Um, schedules and having to drive in and, and stuff like that, right? So it was more like, oh, I can't do other sports. I'll do this one. Is that accurate? Pretty pretty much. I mean, it was more high school when my high school cross-country ski coach, because again, I, I think I ran one season of junior high track, tried that out. And I really was, I was one of these shy kids that didn't want to go do sports and, you know, going on a different bus, coming home later, hanging out with all these kids really didn't fit my personality. And so I, it wasn't until that high school ski coach said, Hey, you've got to either bike, roller ski, rollerblade, or run. And I didn't have any of that equipment, didn't have an opportunity to, to get any of it. I think my dad still had welded a, a bar across a girl's bike just so it looked like a boy's bike. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I had usually at my disposal. So like sporting equipment and having a lot of equipment was an option. So running was the only way I was going to stay in shape. And then when it came to sports too, I feel like as the older kid and having a mother who is ill and going through this whole chronic disease of multiple sclerosis, there wasn't, and my dad working to keep the family you know, going, there, there weren't a lot of options of like, oh, we're going to drive you around and, and go to this practice or that practice. I played some little league baseball and soccer, but running was something I guess I kind of got nudged into and only did it to stay in shape for Nordic skiing, which became a passion of mine in high school. I feel like Courtney DeWalter has a similar story of Minnesota Nordic skiing leading to ultra running greatness. So you guys have <laughs> yeah. that in common. It's nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jenny, you were more like mid to late twenties, right? You were more of a climber. Yeah, I was a climber and then I moved to Seattle um, for a job and I didn't know a single person. And I just felt like mm, maybe I'll try this local 5k, you know, just for something to do and like meet people. So I did, um, I did my first 5k just kind of off the couch and, and I ended up meeting some people at that race um, that worked for a trail running company called Montrail, who remembers that brand, mm -hmm. anybody. <laughs> um, and then I just became friends with those guys. And then that's how I later started working for Montrail and met Scott through Montrail and started trail running. And that's kind of where my running career got its start. Yeah, it's, I have... And some notes here, I, there was an interview that says you were impressed that your coworkers at Montreal ran six miles all at once around Lake Union in Seattle. Yeah. <laughs> Moving to Seattle and seeing Lake Union, I'd ride my bike around and I was like, what? People run around that at lunch? Like, I was just kind of blown away by that. But then that became my regular lunchtime run. Um, so it's just funny how perspectives change. Hmm. In your your cubicle, you shared a cubicle, or you were next to a cubicle with a pretty, I would say, successful ultra runner at the time. Or was she successful at the time? This is, this is Chrissy Mail. She was just getting into it, but when we, um, when she started working at Montreal, she had already won her first fifty k, which was the Tuckanut fifty k, um, a local race outside of Seattle that she is now the race director. 
But um, she was like young, up and coming ultra runner. And I was really inspired by her. Were you able to keep up with everybody at first or were you just getting, I mean, like that's pretty, I mean, that's a fast person to be like, Hey, do you want to go for a run for lunch? <laughs> were you getting dropped <laughs> at the lunch runs? Oh. Or like... It wasn't like a big group run, <laughs> but oh, okay. I would have been dropped for sure. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and you two met around 2001, didn't start dating for several years. Um, do you remember the first time you ran together? that it was like a, was it like a big group thing or was it, was it actually like a date or? <laughs> Jenny's, Jenny's, Jenny's laughing. Cause I'm cringing. <laughs> um, no, we were just friends for the longest time. And back in the day, you know, this is like 20 years ago now. Um, the trail running scene was really small and they, there would be like weekly runs Wednesdays and on Saturdays and just, you know, a handful of people would gather and carpool together and um, meet up at the trailheads. And it wasn't like, oh, this is the fast group and this is a slow group. It was just, it was so small. So everybody kind of ran together. And I remember going on a couple of group runs and Scott was there, but I didn't know that he was a big deal and nobody really acted like he was because I mean, being a big deal in trail running at that time was like so obscure. <laughs> well, and everybody, everybody assumes that I got Jenny into running. And the reality is she was starting on her own via different path. And it's kind of funny when people talk like, oh, you must have got her into to running. So, yeah, we were in similar circles, but it was one of those things where she was just one of the gang of ultra runners that got together. And again, we would do our own thing, go at our own paces, you know, get together. But um, that's what the sport, and I still think it has those elements. And I don't want to sound like one of those old timers, like, oh, the sport's changed. Yeah. But um, it, it, it still has that ambiance. And I think that's what's really fun and cool about it is that people, you know, come as you are. People take you in. And I think that's where, you know, Jenny got into the sport. I got into the sport that way. Um, Again, I, I wanted to be a game warden in high school. So the fact that I began running <laughs> and became an ultra runner, like I was destined and there's nothing wrong with that lifestyle. I'm thankful for, you know, being out in the woods as much as I was and being, that's really all I had. But I think that's what's cool about the sport is it, you don't have to come from a certain um, background of running. And that's what the scene, like Jenny was saying in Seattle, everyone just kind of treated everyone as a regular person even though we all had our own background and, you know, some people won races and did amazing things and other people had their own goals and they did amazing things at work or with families and other things. So it's, it's pretty neat. Do, do you guys have other friends who met um, that are together as a romantic couple from those days? Or are you the only success story? Well, what's success? Are they well, still together? Are they still together? <laughs> Seem like you're pretty okay with it and having a good time. You're so funny. These are the most bizarre questions. <laughs> Not bizarre, but um, funny because we were in the, Scott was in the friend zone for like 15 years, you know? So mm -hmm. we're a success because we're more recently, but our friends who had got together back in that same time, you know, Christy being one of them and our other friend, Hal, like all these other kind of, um, trail running couples when it was still like in the Seattle's infancy. Um, I don't really know many that are still together, but it's because we got a later start outside of friends. Yeah. And if, yeah, Jenny wouldn't have gone for the ponytail that I was rocking back in the, <laughs> the early, the early mid two thousands. Like she cringes every time she sees the photos and I threatened to bring it back, but yeah, we definitely didn't have this like love at first sight and like hold hands on a run. Like we were, we were definitely buddies. She's just waiting for you to get a haircut for years. It's like a, <laughs> right. it's like a parable. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You should wait till it's a fully gray and then bring it back. <laughs> exactly. Oh hey, that's like, that's around the corner. So it's not. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> uh, it's funny when we talk about um, Jenny not, not knowing, not being impressed with, um, with Scott knowing that he was a big deal and I was flipping through, yeah, this is an eat and run in your book, Scott, 
that it's on page 202 and it's you're cooking for Jenny and you guys are starting to date. And it says Jenny was impressed because she'd never seen anyone mill their own flour before. And I kind of was going, <laughs> what year was that? Okay. And then I'm like, okay, at this point he has won seven consecutive Western States, three Spartathlons, one hard rock, two Badwater, 135 twice. And I'm like, and it's the milling the own flour that, that, you know, yep. impresses her. I love that love the story. <laughs> I mean, tough crowd, you know, tough crowd, but yeah. Hey, I was working for Patagonia the time i was like you know hanging out with greatness so scott was just kind of just <laughs> another <laughs> just another kind of you know successful athlete just but that's like run of the mill down in ventura yeah yeah i think she was more impressed with you know redneck turn hippie slash um you know i don't know renaissance man or something like that than yeah my athletic pursuits I mean, as far as relationship skills go, I don't know that, you know, running the Badwater 135 has like, or winning it has as much to do with, maybe there's like some, you know, parallels there, but like, hey, if you can cook, this is way better on a daily daily (laughs) basis. (laughs) Definitely. You got to choose, you got to choose right. And I have, I have a lot of, a lot of food questions, but they're (laughs) um, just because I'm excited about that, but, uh, Scott does all the cooking. And is is this still true? Okay. This is still very much true. Even in these times of quarantine, occasionally, occasionally once or twice a week, maybe I will make something, but he's still like, we're always like, what's for dinner? <laughs> yeah. And when she does cook, I'm like, wow, like you should do this more often. But she, uh, she likes to say that she is, yeah, more of a, a sous chef slash dishwasher, but no, she has she has some skills. She just doesn't like to uh, put them to use. I feel like. But Brendan, you've if you've read North, you know that I did cook every night on the AT. Yes, in a van with no windows or fan or anything. So I'm still writing that out. I'm like, hey, you owe me. <laughs> oh, totally. I would say, yeah. I mean, if if. If you have read that book, I, I do think that's a big, uh, yeah, I'm kind of going, this is a lot of, a lot of withdrawals from the bank of marital partnership here. Like this is, this is an totally. amazing, for, like the support of <laughs> Scott's AT record is like, uh, it's its own thing, which I think is good. Cause you guys wrote the book together and, and, uh, are able to tell the two stories in parallel because you get, you get that sort of like, how is this happening? What's, what's happening behind the scenes and the behind the scenes is like, just as intense, you know, at times. So, and I'm still paying the balance of that credit, <laughs> that relationship credit card bill. That's good. Sure. <laughs> so. That's good. Hey, we need to take the trash out. Oh yeah, I'm 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 in the middle of something. Oh yeah, remember remember the AT? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I got it. So, exactly. But back back to food. <laughs> um. So when so Jenny, at some interview I read that you said you were a lazy vegetarian. Uh, when you met and you just ate cereal and toast. If, if Scott travels to go do something and you're at home, you know, you just like, ah, I'll just, you know, frozen pizza or like what, what's the situation then? Cold cereal, cold cereal for dinner. You guys don't, um, don't expose my weaknesses. <laughs> Jenny, Jenny, you and I, I'm on, I'm on team Jenny's diet here. So you, you, you don't apologize for anything and just keep going. Cause I'm about to jump in with support here. Yeah. It's just really not something that I enjoy or I feel is a good use of my time cooking. Mm. But, but for Scott and a lot of people, cooking is their love language. You know, it's it's an expression of art and, you know, it's a real passion of his, but it's just not for me. So when he's gone, this is going to sound really bad, but he always makes a ton of food. He, put, he like preps it all in oh. glass Tupperwares and he has all these things. He kind of has like meal plans for the whole family. And then we, me and the kids, we do take out, we eat out all the time, (laughs) breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So thankfully he hasn't been able to leave anywhere during this time when all the restaurants are closed. But um, yeah, that's kind of how we survive when he's gone. 
I, I just want to say there's nothing wrong with that. And I think this, this is a good time for, for Jonathan to talk about what he eats for dinner on a regular basis. I would, I am a vegetarian. I don't know if I now have to go around describing myself as a lazy vegetarian, but, <laughs> but I, but I think I might have to, I'm very good with a microwave. I, I just want to say that. So I either am, I'm either on a raw food diet or you know, like if veggie burgers can be microwaved, I'm I'm good with that because that's fast. But yeah, it's kind of a all microwave or raw vegetarian diet, aka perhaps the lazy vegetarian diet. Or the one pot dinner where you eat out of the pot. Scott, I'm not gonna lie, I no pots are ever involved. In, I, I'm not even joking. Like so we if it if it requires the pot, I'm out. Yeah. So pieces of sourdough wow. bread. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm kind of next level with the laziness. I mean, I, I didn't have a microwave, so that was like one crux for me, but I did have a toaster oven. So everything I made, it was in the toaster oven. And, you know, when he's gone, sometimes I miss those days. I'm like, yes, no dishes. Yeah. You know, just dinners were are like so fast. And the kids rejoice because they don't have to mix the sugar cereal with like the whole grain organic flakes, you know. <laughs> I was like, oh, you want the panda buffs? Here you go. <laughs> yeah, we just have different approaches to food and it's really not an enjoyable has time for me mm-hmm. and to the point where she actually gives me a hard time being like is this really a good use of your time you just spent an hour making food huh. so jenny yeah, no, we get in we no, get into arguments I don't, I don't we get into arguments over that. fun stuff but occasionally <laughs> that's a i'm not trying to throw it into the bus but that's uh yeah it's kind of funny to show the extremes and how a relationship uh, can come together and then she's really appreciative for all my cooking too in the end Scott, I just want to say that if you do ever decide to grow out a ponytail and then Jenny and then Jenny kicks you out of the house, you are welcome to come stay with me in Crested Butte, and I will never give you grief for cooking. Um, yeah, I just I just want to put that offer on the table. You know, the hair is getting long. It's, it's been so, now like two months. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, I've got a guest room here. I'm telling okay, you, it's, okay. you've got you've got you've got a place to land. Now, we have a little bit I feel like been making an assumption and I absolutely love that apparently we're just going to do a full hour talking about cooking with the jerks, which is amazing. <laughs> I didn't know that's where we were headed today. But um I feel like we have maybe or I'd just like to hear this from your point of view, Scott, where we are a little bit making this assumption that you do truly enjoy cooking or find it relaxing or find it to be a good creative outlet. Is that true? Or are you still just making up for the, for Jenny's support on the AT trail? (laughs) No, honestly, and it is all of those things you mentioned earlier. And I think for me, it became even more imperative when I became a vegan because I had to figure out how to cook because I grew up hunting fish and boy, my mom was a Betty Crocker cookbook. Um, stay-at-home mom who got a degree in home economics so she actually could teach cooking sewing all that stuff and then i also had grandparents who were constantly showing my grandma i was talking to somebody about this recently but she would bake literally 50 loaves of bread at a time for the church bazaar and sell those to raise money for the church she was in the kitchen all the time she could dress a deer and then the next hour be like making some extravagant Polish pastry or something like that. And so I spent a lot of time with my grandparents and I was always cooking with my grandmas because that's what we did. My aunts were having me cut corn off of the corn on the cob and freezing it and preserving stuff, canning things. So I don't know, I I grew up kind of off the land in a way, um, kind of like backwoods Minnesotan. And then with grandparents that lived through the Great Depression and like food was a part of not only taking care of your body and your health, but your family, it was a social cultural experience too. And I feel like, like Jenny mentions, it is maybe my love language or the way, cause my grandma, no matter who came in the door, she would put a spread on the table in a matter of 15, 20 minutes. I guess maybe I need to be a little bit more like my grandmother and prepping it a little quicker. And when, now that we have kids, I definitely take Jenny's advice in terms of it not taking too long because now I'm like Instapot all the way, just, 
keep it simple because yeah, some days I was like, I don't have the energy after dealing with a, a two and almost four year old. That's nothing to be ashamed of. No. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I, yeah, I do. But yeah, it is, it's something that I really enjoy doing and it's, it's a lot of fun. And I feel like food is such a, and I feel like people have had to get reconnected with that, especially during these times where, oh, you can't go and pick up something around the corner, even though there is some fast food or a couple restaurants available. Um, it's interesting. I only have one timely question, and that's what what's the ingredient that you're worried about not being able to find at a grocery store right now during the pandemic sort of quarantine? Jenny's answer is cereal, obviously. I mean, my answer is 100% oat milk. Like, if we don't have oat milk, then how am I going to eat the cereal? How, how am I going to feed the kids breakfast? Um, but... I don't even know because there's so much sourdough starter in our fridge that there's no room for anything else. Another one of my gripes is just like, really, do we need this right now? We're okay. down to one container. I've been using it all kinds of different things with it. And another thing that I learned from my grandparents is you never throw away anything in terms of food, anything that has caloric value. So it's a bad um, habit I have. <laughs> Um, but in terms of ingredients, I would say there's really nothing because I feel like I've gotten so good at being able to survive and I kind of embrace the challenge. Um, it was funny. I went to a grocery store like literally a week into when most people were sheltering in place, you know, I, after all the craze of people just emptying like shelves and literally there was like four things in the produce section. I was like, okay, clearly no one's going to clear out the produce sections, right? It was all the canned goods and canned beans, all the like rations for Armageddon. But I went to our local grocery store and there literally was nothing but scallions. So green onions, radishes, and what else was there? I think maybe they had a few cloves of garlic, but it, that was it. And I was like, wow, this is going to be like Iron Chef, Whoa. Um, you know, 5.0 kind of thing because <laughs> it, <laughs> I was really shocked that we were getting to that point. But <clears throat> it's made things interesting, and I feel like it's, yeah, it's been a little fun. It's almost been like a little um, challenge. And then also I was like, wow, this is like what times were like throughout history, whether it was in, you know, way back to World War II or even just more recent times when you look at different countries when they have rations or things like that. So, um, yeah, it was kind of interesting. So I, I embraced it. That's maybe the uh, the sick part of me in terms of like people need to like, be a little tougher. Mm. I think it's my my Polish uh, grandparents, you know, speaking to me yeah. or speaking to us. So there is no fear. Basically, you're not you're not. Yeah, I'm not. Can't I'm not be too fearful. Okay. Yeah, I mean, if I have to start growing my own food, especially when we get a foot of snow, like you know, mid April like this, uh, yeah, it would be a little rough. I don't have a greenhouse or anything like that, but I feel like if I can get you know, a, a, a few different uh, produce items. I can whip, whip up a soup or, or something like that. Now the kids may not like it cause they're used to getting, you know, like Tom Ka with tofu and, you know, Pad Thai and Indian food and all these extravagant um, cultural foods. But um, yeah, it, it might get more simple. Times might resort. Hey, we might resort more to, to Jenny's uh, diet. <laughs> it's just have like, well, kids, you get cabbage stew today. Frozen waffles. <laughs> oh yeah, that would be that would be but. anarchy in my house. That would not be <laughs> not be good. Um, I'm just looking through your recipes in the back of Eat and Run, and oh yeah, you do have burgers in here. Okay, so do you do you guys ever buy veggie burgers like in out of the freezer in the store, or are they always homemade? No, we bu we buy some, and I feel like even with the advent of all these new burgers. I feel like we're spoiled nowadays because I remember, you know, I, yep. I was vegan 20 years ago and I was, you know, hunting fish and boy. I loved my burgers, loved, you know, meat and none of that stuff was even close to a burger. Um, so now it's, it's kind of interesting. Like the ones that come out, I'm not saying they're healthy, but the, the stuff out by Beyond and Impossible Foods, they definitely, I think it's more a nostalgic thing of like, oh, this is like the closest thing you can come. But when we make our own, I feel like they're they're amazing too. The lentil walnut burgers, although it takes a little time, it's worth it. Yeah. Wait, now Brendan, are you vegetarian? Yeah, since two thousand 
Five. Okay. So, yeah. That's what wow. I thought. But yeah. not vegan. No. I mean, a lot of days I am, yes, but uh, diners and uh, pizza is kind of my have a difficult um, time not pizzas but pizzas it's like easier and easier not it is know, deep dish not a hard time but no no i yeah and I'm but aware of you. <laughs> somebody <laughs> should give him a hard time we don't, we don't have we don't have like dairy in the house hardly at all because hillary doesn't eat dairy at all so it's a sort of like it's yeah a lot of days i'm like oh it was another vegan day but but yeah i'm, I'm not uh not made the entire jump yet so have you seen this movie called The Game Changers? I, I saw it at uh, Mount, Mountain <laughs> Film, actually. So I've seen the, oh, you did. the oh, first nice. cut. Yeah, for sure. Uh, oh, okay. Well, you know what? Like the 20th cut or whatever cut it's on, the, the actual one that's on Netflix, it's actually way better than the first cut. So oh. maybe revisit it. I thought the first cut was awesome, but yeah, I can rewatch oh, okay. it for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, Just my opinion. Okay. <laughs> Uh, the the question I was gonna ask was I went, was gonna try to get your veggie burger power rankings like top three oh, okay. brands. And I have a couple, but I don't think a lot of them. I think two of them are not vegan. But I have my top three. I thought about this. If you guys would like to hear mine first while you're thinking, I can do that. Yeah, I would like to hear yours. <laughs> okay, I would like to hear yours. Uh, number one is Field Roast. Uh, number two, Ooh. Amy's All American Veggie Burger. And number three, which is totally not vegan, and I don't even know where I can find them anymore, is Morningstar Farms tomato and basil pizza burgers. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Nice. Morningstar Farms, nice. Oh, there those was are a old school. Oh yeah. Yeah, those are old school for sure. Yeah, they were, and now they've got to be like all this, um, you know, backlash against the new veggie burgers that are like taking over fast food. I feel like Morningstar Farms has got to be like, you guys, we were, we were doing so well. We had this quiet little <laughs> yeah. existence and nobody was mad at us. And now, well, well just think about Boca Burger. I mean, is that even around anymore? But oh, like, yeah. I remember that was, that was the only one yep. back in the day. Yeah. You can, you can find them in a lot of places for sure. I mean, maybe I'd let Jenny rank her like first, only because we're not like huge burger people to begin with. So we're not the burger connoisseurs at, you know, everybody's <laughs> like um, beyond burgers and impossible burgers, but they're still greasy burgers, you know? Yeah. So we don't generally tend to eat those, but if I am going to have one, I like impossible burger is my number one. Okay. And then I like beyond burger. And then I still like this old school burger called dr prager's oh yeah yeah yep (laughs) i mean dr prager has like a really funny profile photo on the packaging and (laughs) they might want to lose that photo because it's a little creepy but um i still love those maybe just from nostalgia but um there's a lot of healthier burgers out there that we've tried like the hillary burger is really good and um Hmm. I don't know, Scott. Yeah, the problem is I don't really, we we sample some of that stuff like occasionally, but I don't have, I don't have the palate to say this is definitely the best. I must say the Beyond sausages are pretty impressive. Again, not healthy. <laughs> They're just dripping with fat, but it's um, pretty impressive how they wanted to replicate, you know, the skin of the sausage and how that crisps up and some of those things like for the real meat eaters out there. Um, some people can't even tell they're not eating meat, which, you know, if you eat that kind of food or, you know, fast food type meats, it's really, I think, hard to tell. In fact, I think the veggie options are, are just as good in terms of taste, if not better for a lot of people. So, I mean, I feel like here's the best burgers are definitely at some of these top or most popular fast food restaurants, um, for people who are really into this stuff. I do some traveling, so I've been around places, but like Monty's Burger in LA supposedly does amazing. So some of these restaurants are taking the base of say a Beyond or an Impossible or some other burger, and then they like blend it into their own like customized burger with the toppings and everything. And that's where I think if you're going to really be into burgers, um, I'm trying to think if anybody in Denver is doing that, but I feel like that's the way to go if you really want to say like, what's the best burger out there is where people take say a substance of a, or that base substance of a burger and then make it their own kind of thing. That's, that's where it's at. But I've got to say 
making your own at home. You can get some pretty amazing texture and, and stuff with lentils and the, the umami with mushrooms that are, again, well worth it. Yeah. I feel like I'm asking a chef to like slum, go slumming <laughs> in the grocery store. I'm like, no, sorry. Yeah. Exactly. I'm so trashy. Yeah. That's all right. No, I, hey, we're, I'm keeping it honest. I, yep. I'd like to ask just what you think of this kind of trend we're in, right? The, I'm going to use some, a term that will probably make uh, some folks wince, I guess, but you know, the kind of processed fake meat, right? Um, are you, let's say, generally optimistic about this? Are you concerned about this? I'm optimistic because I feel like if you can get people eating plants versus an animal food, it's a good thing. Now, that comes down to more of like an ethical uh, argument. And then when it comes to like pure enjoyment, it's pretty amazing. I mean, Jenny and I will sometimes, this is like, we have a couple of things in the freezer sometime again to, to satisfy maybe our fast food, but we have some like orange non-chicken um, by Jardine, which mm-hmm. is oh, pretty yeah. good. And, and again, when, when, we, when, we, when we eat that, we're not like, oh, this is the greatest meal in terms of our health, but I think it's more nostalgia. And so I feel like people still want to eat things for nostalgia, for social, psychological reasons. And I think it's a good thing if you can give them something that's bases from plants. Now, again, the ingredient profile might not be um, the best in terms of health. But again, we're, we're getting people off of and getting away from, I feel like, the whole factory farming of animals. And that's a big issue, I feel like, whether you're somebody who's a very advocate of animal rights, um, whether you're somebody who's really uh, passionate about that aspect. Nobody, I think, agrees that animals should be treated the way they're treated in terms of these feedlots and um, cages. And so I think that's, if we can get all of fast food going to this, these plant-based analogs, I think we're, we're probably going in the right direction. Um, and then I feel like as people get into the diet, they're going to start realizing what's best for their health. Um, so I guess there's two ways of tackling. It's like the argument too, is test food, a test tube meat a good thing or a bad thing? And if you're trying to prevent you know, the way animals are treated, you know, it could be a good thing. So I think it's one of those arguments. Jenny and Scott, did you both initially sort of make the move to vegetarianism or veganism because like first and foremost, because of the ethical argument? I mean, well, I'll, I guess I'll start since I've been vegetarian longer than Scott has. Um, <laughs> Again, like, like ultra running, I did not like turn Jenny vegetarian or vegan. Um, yeah, I started eating vegetarian when I was actually in middle school because a good friend of mine, her older sister, who we just kind of thought was, we kind of idolized. She was like this hippie. She was vegetarian. So we went vegetarian and I had read this book called 50 Simple Things You Can Do to Save the World. And it was just like a young kid's, you know, little handbook. And um, one of the things was to eat, was to stop eating meat. And so um, that was really my impetus was to help the environment and for environmental reasons. Um, And then I'm Asian, you know, half Japanese and um, I just, I've been lactose intolerant from, from birth. And so as soon as Scott kind of came into my world and cooked everything and I stopped eating dairy, I felt so much better. And I had eczema all my life and then it went away, like my skin allergies and all this stuff just felt much better for me once I eliminated, um, dairy. So it was pretty easy to switch over from vegetarian to vegan, um, with a living chef. <laughs> <laughs> and I've come to appreciate the ethical and um, just the animal rights issues with, with the diet. But honestly, I mean, I grew up hunting and fishing, so I've killed a lot of animals. I you know, grew up with that mentality. I, I feel like if somebody tried to cram it down my throat from an ethical side of things, I would have been just like, who do you think you are? Like, I mean, I probably would have used a few... <laughs> a few other choice words, but 
And I feel like that aspect, you warm up to it, especially someone like myself. It was really for health. I read a book um, by Dr. Andrew Weil, Eight Weeks to Optimum Health. And that book really just really piqued my interest in terms of diet and healing and how do we avoid chronic disease while I was working in hospitals as a physical therapy student. So I think it was a, a culmination of that health. Um, I was, wasn't looking for performance benefits. It was really like, how do I live healthier and avoid some of the chronic disease I was seeing? Um, because at that point I was eating fast food three, four or five times a week, depending upon the week. Um, and I was, you know, somebody who's eaten you know, two McChicken sandwiches and extra large order fries. So I was not headed on a path of like really great health, even though I was an athlete and loved running ultra marathons, but it was really for health reasons, first and foremost. And then I, you know, you start reading it and you look at the environmental aspects, you look at the, the animal um, treatment issues. And so that, that's where it hit. And I feel like that's how you get people, if you get them interested because they have something tastes good or because they want to get healthier, um, that's a good segue. I feel like sometimes the the other issues can be a little too strong for people's liking, <laughs> especially in such a divided time we live in. Yeah. It was interesting though, Scott, when you, you kind of first brought up factory farms and certainly for me, back as a um, very, very happy meat eater growing up in Chicago, where like if there wasn't meat, it wasn't a meal type of thing. It was around 1999, 2000, when the whole factory farm issue for me is what kind of made the turn. That's kind of the short version of it. But it was like, it's like, man, I was living in the city. Like there wasn't a bunch of like, oh, here's a lovely little farm where animals are, you know, treated well. It's like it kind of and plus I was broke. And so it was like the meat I'm eating is going to be factory farm or kind of nothing. And so that certainly at the time, and, and I don't know, I, I suppose that there things have come along in 20 years and there maybe are more ethical options, one might say, than like the factory farm system, but there's just not a single redeeming thing about the factory farm system by any measure, right? You know, you're, you're far removed from talking to the ethical hunter at that point, right? Exactly. It's like, this is, a, this is an abomination on multiple levels. And the second book that got me going was Howard Lyman's Mad Cowboy. And he, you know, he was the Texas, I mean, well, he was actually a Montana cattle rancher, but he went on the Oprah show. And those of us who lived the, the early 2000s, or actually, I think it was late 90s when he was on her show. And she said, yeah, I'll never eat another hamburger again. Um, and then she got in that huge court case with the Texas cattle ranchers. And, oh, yeah. um, and that was all over mad cow disease. And so I feel like there are those issues, whether it's factory farming or you start looking at like crazy stuff that can happen, like mad cow disease from feeding animals their own meat or parts of, parts of their own, uh, you know, uh, other animals along their lines, flesh. That's what's scary. So his book was like, wow, if this third generation cattle rancher from Montana can go vegan, um, and he wasn't just going vegetarian, he was going vegan. Um, it was like, okay, a backwoods Minnesota guy like me can do it. So that was a huge book. So like, like yourself, I was so far removed from it. And I didn't know the difference between what was organic, what was free range. I knew the difference between eating. <laughs> if you eat wild game, you know the difference right away. It doesn't matter how well you marinate it, how much you, <laughs> you put into it. Um, growing up on that and eating all kinds of different animals, um, most people would not eat meat if they just had to eat wild game all the time. Um, I just, that's my own, uh, my own thought because it's, it's not the experience they think of when they think of biting into a juicy burger or a, a tenderloin. I guess uh, I'm sort of evolving this question for a lot of our guests now, but how are both of you getting better at running at this point? Scott, obviously you've had massive success for a long time um, and you could just quit and say, I'm just going to do the speaking gigs and write books about it and plenty of material, but what's driving you to keep doing it and how do you get joy out of it now? It, it's my, I might joke and say like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to de-evolve my running. <laughs> it's like, I'm like, I'm trying to, I'm trying to break myself uh, down so I don't have to run as much. Um, uh, no, I'm just kidding. I, I think, 
you know, it's more than anything, I feel like what I've had to do more recently is really work on like the why and the psyche of like my running because physically yeah, I'm, I'm old. There's no doubt about that. I'm not going to, you know, win a major hundred miler right now. I, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm fine with that too, but I think the, the hard part for me is because my body feels good. I'm not, some of my friends have some injuries that don't allow them to run and train and do the things that they want to do in their forties. So it's hard for me because most of my parts are in pretty good shape and they don't have major issues. Um, the biggest thing has been trying to find ways to stay engaged and want to go out and do hard training to push my body and my mind places. And I feel like there's still that desire, but um, it gets harder to like justify. And that's where as much as, especially when having kids and a family and feeling, I guess, blessed in a way that I've been able to travel the world race and, you know, explore my goals when it comes to running. And I did that not thinking it was going to be a career. And then the way it evolved and now running is so much a part of who I am that it, it's really, yeah, it's kind of hard. I'm, I'm caught between the crossroads in terms of like how much, did, you know, doesn't merit going out for a three hour run on a weekend day when, you know, I could be spending more time with my kids or um, that's such a luxury these days. I feel like, so like for my, I guess for my, I guess the bigger issues, I'm trying to be really efficient with my running and training and try to find ways to stay fit, stay more balanced. Um, I guess if I were to sum it up in a word is finding balance. And that means balance in terms of my mind and the psychology of wanting to go out and push myself or finding things that are engaging, much like you know, I mentioned in North with the AT, doing a speed record like that and finding things that challenge myself in a way. And then also be okay with, okay, I'm going to run with a double jogger right now. And <laughs> I'm going to find a way to like get a, get a good workout pushing, you know, 80 pounds down the road. Um, and I guess, yeah, I mean, being adaptable has been key. Like Jenny and I, especially during this time, I guess for people who are listening, we all know what it's been like to be, you know, cooped up uh, with our families, with our loved ones. Um, and you know, finding that striking a balance and, and being able to do workouts. So yeah, it gets really interesting. And that's where adaptability and doing things like strength workouts and like, how can I, how can I do a workout with my kids around? Um, Jenny and I were, were out recently trying to, and we miss running together. I mean, that's one of the biggest things, especially when you don't have anybody to help uh, relieve you in terms of childcare. Um, we end up running alone a lot. And I think as a couple, th those were one of the things we enjoyed the most going for two, three hours in the mountains. So I guess for me, running has been, yeah, it's been this really interesting evolution right now. I mean, my relationship with running definitely has evolved. And I think having kids, it, for a while, I mean, you know, I, after I had Raven, I ran my first marathon um, six months later. And then with Evs, I ran New York marathon like seven months later. And I felt like, oh, there was so much of me that wanted to get back to running long distances and ultras like right after I had kids, but um, my times are real slow and I'm just like, Oh my gosh, am I ever going to PR again? Because it's kind of actually depressing. Like the last marathon I ran was big Sur a year ago. And I just, I couldn't eat enough. Like my energy level wasn't there because I was still nursing and, um, I felt, I felt like my reasons for running these races weren't as pure and as joyful as I would like them to be. So I've mm. just kind of, I've just tried to like stop having expectations and I kind of backed away from longer runs right now and just really doing like maintenance, maintenance and more like wellness, like for myself, like I do need to run every day or or almost every day just um, for clarity, mental clarity and just to like handle being a mom right now. Um, but I haven't done any long, I, I don't have any like races planned. So eventually I would love to get back to, I'd love to run another hundred. I mean, UTMB was the last hundred I ran and that was in 2009. 
So I'm like due for some long distance running here. And I just feel like um, having a two and three year old is really like my time to stay and hang out with them as much as possible right now. But pretty soon, you know, then I'll feel more comfortable leaving for longer times. But I, yeah, but my my relationship with running is constantly evolving and constantly I'm just always trying to make sure that it doesn't feel like a job, like an obligation of like, oh, I have to run today. And more just like a like like a really joyous thing and a celebration of movement and um and being outside and, and yeah. So I never I don't like I'm always like checking myself when I have like a negative relationship with running. But right now it's good. It feels great. I love I'm feeling better and better. So um, yeah, so maybe I'll do a hundred next year if there's, I mean, unless everything's still canceled, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> it's another large variable at this point. Um, what's a dream run look like for you now with kids and with the inability to usually run together? Does, does it like something in the foothills above Boulder or is it the both of you with the kids in a jogging stroller or what does it look like? I would definitely not say with the kids no. in a jogger. Yeah. <laughs> that's like, that's real life, normal, <laughs> not dream. <laughs> no, our reality is with the jogger. It's been so long since Scott and I have been able to do, you know, like four passes loop or mm-hmm. all these iconic runs that take all day, like rim to rim to rim. And, and we don't have grandparents in town. We mm-hmm. don't really, yeah, so have that luxury of like, dropping them off for the day and say, we'll see you in eight hours. Yeah. Thing. So that, that and multi-day stuff, like the Appalachian Trail or doing the PCT, we used to love getting out for fast packing, lightweight hiking, backpacking trips. And that's just really not an option when you have 60 pounds of kiddo. <laughs> <laughs> and they eat too. So you have to take food exactly. for them. And so. they need their own rain jackets, even if you go super light. But we did do an amazing trip this summer. We biked around Hokkaido in Japan mm-hmm. and camped out of a tent. And biking is duo because they're basically in the trailer and you can pull weight easier than putting it on your back. You, you mentioned the PCT and somewhere I read you, you guys joke that you have a 25-year plan to finish the PCT. What uh, What's the status right now and... Like, do you have like 300 miles done or 100 or? Not quite. I think oh, no. we're 250. We 220. No, 220. <laughs> so we yeah, have a long ways to go. We are only what? Less than a 10? Yeah, we might be cramming when we're in our like 50s or 60s. But yeah, we're going for the slowest known time on the PCT. <laughs> that's um, perfectly fine with me because it's so beautiful and I love it so much. And we. We love, I mean, when Scott and I think about it, when we would do these sections, there'd be hour long sections where we'd be walking, you know, right next to each other in complete silence and not saying anything. And just to have that much silence sounds luxurious right now. (laughs) You know, we have two little toddlers and everything. The noise, the noise they create is just, it's... It's kind of next level, even though our kids are really mellow. Just even, you know, playing, banging on things and stuff. Just There's just a lot of noise, and I really miss the solitude and silence. Jenny and Scott, I really, we really appreciate you making us feel pretty good about our current decisions not to have kids. <laughs> there's, a great, there's a great tweet that Jenny... It, basically, the guy was like, I sure haven't heard from my, when are you having kids? Parenthood is the greatest uh-huh. story of life crowd in a long time. Like, yeah, nobody's really singing that. I mean, I don't get me wrong. I love having kids. They're hashtag blessed. But, you know, <laughs> when we're stuck in a tiny home in the snow with no skiing and no sledding, and we're kind of looking for other things to occupy them with so shoveling snow i mean this is my childhood you know splitting wood stacking wood they've been doing a lot of 
tasks like that. We've so. been doing a lot of baking, a lot of art, a lot of reading. Um, it's great. Don't let us don't let us talk you out of having children. <laughs> so, can we talk a little bit about your book North? I think I read somewhere that you guys really did not enjoy the writing of this book mm. because. <laughs> Raven was one when you were trying to write it? Yeah, well, Raven was one, and I was like eight months pregnant with that with Evergreen. And um, just, you know, collaborating with your partner on something creative and also just painful to sit in front of a computer and write and try to babysit our one-year-old, it, it just dragged on forever and ever and and I like to not throw Scott under the bus but you know be honest he's he procrastinated so (laughs) hard on this and you know I understand because it's hard to write about yourself and it's hard to really go to the dark places and talk about things that you don't want to talk about and for me my my writing was just like was more like observational and funny and it was just easier. And for him, it was so much harder, but I'd be like, I'd be so mad at him because he would just rather like trim the bushes and cook (laughs) food and like do anything else other than sit down and write. So. I don't know, Jenny. I think that is called writing. Uh, Yeah. In my experience. (laughs) In fairness. Yeah. It sounds like Scott was doing it exactly the right way as far as. Well, and best best selling authors that I know do the same thing. Like I was talking to Chris McDougall, and he's like, "Oh man, he's like, I'm out here moving rocks." On that. I mean, give me any like manual labor task than sit in front of a computer, rack my brain. And you know, it didn't help when I'd come back after three hours at the coffee shop, and Jane was like, "What? You came back with a page and a half?" And it's just, it's just a hard process for me. And it's interesting. The more writers I talk to, they're like, "Oh, you know, this isn't." fun like it would get I'd get I'd get glimmers where I'd be like oh okay I wrote some decent stuff (laughs) I'd be like oh this is actually decent um you know and of course just a few sentences sometimes uh, is worthwhile in the end when you like rip it apart but yeah there's be times where I'd get like oh this is kind of fun but in general it's just such a hard process for me and I know some artists get into their work a little bit more it's just for somebody that loves to be outside doing things with my body. The last thing to do at the end of the day would be sitting in front of a computer. Um, yeah, just a hard process. Um, but again, it's rewarding once you get it done. It's just, and we went through three drafts um, and Jenny really pushed, I mean, I gotta give her a huge round of applause because this book wouldn't have been what it was without her pushing for it. Cause after the second draft, I'm like, it's good enough. And she's like, like no way. And uh, I think that's when it comes to like working together with your partner on a project, not only like the Appalachian Trail and setting a speed record, but then writing about it is like next level, um, but also rewarding if you can survive it. <laughs> you don't need a divorce attorney in the end, or um, you know, you, you don't end up hating each other after that process. But it's um, it's interesting. How was how did you decide that this wasn't just going to be a book by Scott Jurek? Why was it the two of you together writing? Well, we wrote the proposal in a way that had Jenny's voice interlocked and it was always our idea to blend the two voices. Cause I didn't want to be, Oh, Jenny was back at the trailhead doing a, B and C and Oh, Jenny said this to somebody, you know, at a roadside diner or Jenny said this to a through hiker. It, it really sounded clunky to me. And it sounded like I was this master storyteller and I was, you know, I knew everything that was going on. The reality is I didn't know, half the crap that was going on out on the trail. And I didn't think it could be told in another voice. Now, our editor, it was interesting. Our editor really wasn't sold on the idea. She wanted to find a different way to convey Jenny's voice, um, just in a different format. So we really had to fight for it. And then once it was done and once we were like getting it to click, um, she was pretty impressed. But it's not an easy thing to do. I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> like writing in two voices and interlocking a story and people coming in and out of that. Um, it's one thing if it's fiction, but if it's nonfiction, it's like, oh, 
ideally Jenny would come in here, but it's like, well, I haven't finished this aspect and it doesn't really fit well. So that was the hardest part I think about it. Like how do we in inject those different voices at the appropriate times? Yeah. Doing it together in that way is sort of a worst nightmare scenario for me, but it's, it's pulled off very well. It's like that principle of storytelling. It's meanwhile, back at the ranch where you leave a cliffhanger and go back mm -hmm. to the other story and these two stories in parallel. Well, thanks. We appreciate it because you've actually gone to school for <laughs> the type of <laughs> creative writing. That's why Jenny and I, like, you know, we we can write, but sometimes I'm like, ah, I didn't really get, you know, a full, I feel like oh, I needed four years to study this craft before trying to do it. But I think to everyone out there listening, I think there's a lot of value sometimes in just forging ahead with something and, and trying to learn something. Um, if there's anything like during this troubled time that we're living through, I think people are picking up different things and you know, trying to learn something if they don't have two toddlers <laughs> running around. But, and I think that's good for people to, to really like get down in the trenches and do something that is just so grueling and so hard um, and challenge ourselves mentally and psychologically on so many different levels. Yeah. I think uh, most people's biggest obstacle is giving themselves permission to say, I could write a book or I could do something like that. And once you do that, it starts, it doesn't get easier, but you're, you're at least doing it. I think that's way better learning process than studying in, in a classroom personally. Anyway. That's cool. I mean, like Scott was saying, or how you asked how we decided to do the two voices, you know, I wasn't necessarily sold on it either because I know that, Scott's audience, you know, they want to hear from Scott. They don't want to hear from me. That's not um, why they pick up a book and they don't want to really, you know, they really just want his insights and his, um, his emotions and his like, you know, they want to learn from him. And so it wasn't like, it wasn't, it wasn't like a no brainer for me to write it. And, and also, like you said, like, I just really I didn't feel like what I had to say was super interesting and I didn't think people would want to know my parts, but, um, but once I sat down, cause I'm not a writer. And once I sat down to do my parts, it just, it seemed to fill in a lot of blanks for the story. So it gave a lot more um, background to what to, you know, to the why, like why we were even out there. Um, and it made it, you know, we never wanted it to be like a trip report, like a blog report, just kind of day one, we did this, they did. So, um, yeah, it felt important for me to, to talk about certain things. Plus, Jenny is way more funnier than I am. You know, I had to talk about this real heavy stuff. I was like talking about just, you know, grinding out miles every day and just um, trying to, to find us. Uh, sources of strength. I didn't think I had all these things that are way deeper. So Jenny got to have more fun with it. And I think people who do read the book look forward to her sections because she is a little bit lighter and she gets to tell something. And then she can also make fun of me and she, <laughs> <laughs> she can, yeah, she can be a little bit, I think, more humorous for a subject that sometimes was really tough. Gives it some levity in between. Yeah. So everyone should buy uh, North and Eat and Run, preferably at least a dozen copies of each. Well, also Scott redid the audio, the Audible book for um, Eat and Run. It used to be a, like an actor, some random person, but then just recently he reread it, or he read it himself. So he's oh, the narrator okay. in Eat and Run. So I, if people like a lot of people love to listen to it, but I think it's even better in his own voice. And we, um, we narrate Norris also. So if you don't mind my voice, um, you should listen to it on audible. Well, listen, Scott and Jenny, thank you so much for the time. Um, this was fun and, uh, hopefully we can do it again down the line. And, uh, I just can't wait to see next time what path of questioning Brendan has, um, since I really didn't see the cooking conversation happening today, but uh, that was super fun. And so thanks so much. Thanks Thank for you. having us. This was awesome. <laughs> We're glad we could like go through different directions and you know, that's, that's how a trail goes. It never follows a straight line. Oh, Great man. point. Thanks you guys. 
That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Many thanks to Jenny and Scott and Brendan for the conversation. And don't forget to go pick up your copy of North by the Jurix. And if you enjoyed this episode, we would also love it if you would subscribe to Off the Couch wherever you get your podcasts, share this episode with your friends, and leave us a nice little rating or review in Apple Podcasts. We'd appreciate it. I also want to say thanks to Luke Alley for producing this episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Crested Butte, Colorado, we hope that you are doing well, And until next time, please be safe. Please take good care of yourself and everyone else. Please keep moving forward. And we will talk to you again next week.